Support for this episode comes from Team Pennsylvania, hosting the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit, two events in 2022 offering a place for farmers, professionals, investors, and policymakers to learn and connect. Details at pahempsummit.com. Welcome to Fields, where today we are discussing meat, and especially all those meat alternatives you've been hearing about, like cell-based agriculture and even plant-based meat. Um, And one article that sort of inspired our conversation was in The Counter. If you're not familiar, thecounter.org, it's a great resource. Um, A piece by Joe Fassler called Lab-Grown Meat is Supposed to be Inevitable. Science Tells a Different Story. Uh, So yeah, I'm Allie Wist. I'm Melissa Metric. I'm Wythe Marshall. And we're here to talk about carnivores. You're listening to Season 2 of Fields, the podcast, with Melissa Metric, Wythe Marshall, and Allie Wist. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow food, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming in urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements, examining each in turn. Thank you so much for listening. So basically, maybe, White, you could help by teeing up uh, a little bit about the advances in alternative meats and just sort of what you know about the landscape of alternative meat protein, kind of like why we're here. Sure. Uh, Well, there's a lot to talk about with, um, quote unquote, alt protein. Um, But the big issue is that eating animals is a lot more intensive on the environment than, than growing and eating plants. Um, and there, these differences skew really radically when you talk about industrial uh, agricultural techniques. So, for example, concentrated animal feedlot operations, CAFOs, you hear about that a lot with, um, with pigs, chickens, with, with um, you know, fattening cows. And, and the issue is these operations um, concentrate the animals in a, in a small area, uh, and it's very efficient for a lot of reasons uh, business-wise, but it creates kind of giant lagoons of manure and uh, creates essentially um, sort of this vast monocropping system where to support that you need lots and lots of land to grow feed. So a lot of corn and soy and, and things like that, uh, which is not necessarily a good use of the land if we're looking, especially at the long-term of climate disruption, but there's also immediate environmental effects. So people are looking at other ways of eating meat um, instead of just not eating meat because I guess a lot of people like to eat meat. Uh, that's very cultural. Um, it's very historically specific. So people didn't used to eat as much meat. Now, um, a lot of consumers, especially in the quote unquote global north, eat a lot of meat every day. And um, one question, if you are looking to do something about agriculture within the kind of market system is, well, how do you incentivize them to do something different? Uh, and so one reason to talk about it on a show about urban agriculture is a lot of tech startups are based in cities, which are kind of far from the centers of calculation of animal meat world. Uh, and they're looking at other techniques like, okay, we'll formulate meat out of plants and mushrooms and or uh, we'll grow meat in a lab. So it is real 
meat, it's muscle tissue and fat from an animal, uh, or you're mixing in the fat, but it's, it's the muscle tissue from the animal. Um, but it's grown, you know, in a, in a, in a lab, like you would, um, brew beer. So it's a very different kind of, uh, take on how you're getting meat and, and really what the product is. So there's a lot of legal battles around what to call it. Um, I was just looking, there's a whole, been a whole debate about butter and can you call things butter that aren't actually made with cow milk um, and instead are using plant-based alternatives, plant-based oils that, that, that can be formulated a lot like butter. Um, and the meat people similarly have, have a, a similar agenda. They, a lot of meat producers uh, want to sue to say, well, you can't even call it meat unless it's, it's involving an animal. So this is kind of a huge topic, but it touches on a lot of questions about um, rural land and lifestyles around agriculture, uh, especially in the United States that are sort of big, intensive scale agriculture versus looking at um, other models that are being presented in the media as like lean, disruptive, small tech startups that are doing something new. And I think, um, Ali, maybe where you're going with this is that you have some some questions, some critiques about those companies as well. And, and just to um, interject, we did talk about uh, this with Garrett Broad and uh, Mira Zazenhaus of, of New Harvest. Um, and Garrett's an awesome scholar of, of food studies, especially around meat eating and veganism. And we had a, a good uh, first season episode. So if you haven't checked that out, you might do so specifically about cellular agriculture uh, and the kind of birth of that industry and, and how that might affect, you know, cities. So I think today we're looking at some t- some things that touch on that and sort of, you know, advance what's, what's going on in the last year, right? Yeah. And I mean, our... We'll build up to this, but I think we're kind of going to question the inevitability of quote unquote progress and some of these alternatives. But I like starting with the sort of what's wrong with meat consumption, like you touched upon with, you know, I think it's really tempting to um, it's so nice to avoid the messiness of real animals, this fantasy that technology can alienate nature enough so that we can sort of erase all the unpleasantries, including the carbon footprint, because it really is real. Like the ecological concerns um, are really profound. I mean, agriculture, if you include land use, you know, accounts for almost a third by some estimates of greenhouse gases. And then there's the issue of, protein efficiency, um, it t- for every 25 calories of plant material that a cow, for instance, ingests, according to some estimates, we only get one calorie of that. Uh, and the piece in the counter kind of equated that to throwing away like 24 plates of food for every one that you eat. So, you know, and like White said, you have this huge amount of deforestation going on in order to grow all of the plants that we're feeding to cows. So the urgency behind this is real. Okay, so so one of the things that Fassler also stated um, within his article was, um, you know, all of the climate effects of eating meat. And so it is, you know, the use of land. It's also what cows actually create, right? So the methane gases that they create and things like that. Um, but it's kind of interesting. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about um, kind of in a, in a counter in a way is, um, I mean, there is a difference, a huge difference between, you know, producing meat in this industrial agriculture kind of way, and then also raising livestock and raising certain, um, uh, I wouldn't say varieties because I'm coming from the plant world, but, um, I've heard, especially from heritage meats, 
the idea of if you do not raise these varieties of animals, then you will lose all these different varieties of animals, um, especially um, these animals that we specifically raise for meat, right? So, um, you know, maybe this isn't such a good counter argument because it's like, what are the certain varieties of animals that are used in most like these livestock, huge livestock places. Um, but it is this idea of biodiversity and biodiversity within these varieties of animals of pig, of cow, of chicken. Um, and you know, maybe that isn't necessarily a counter argument, but it's also kind of this, this interesting idea of, um, you know, who is it being catered towards? Is it being catered towards meat eaters? Is it being catered towards vegetarians? A lot of times it is being catered towards meat eaters. But um, how does that kind of change one's culture of eating meat, right? And that symbolism of eating meat within one's culture. You know, so this kind of cultural perspective, which I feel like is sometimes the largest kind of boundary, you know? Yeah, and that's really interesting to add to the equation, right? That sort of heirloom breeds of animals that you lose when you stop raising. I mean, I don't think we're at a place where we would stop raising animals, but certainly heritage breeds have a role. And on one hand, sometimes it feels like the growth of cell agriculture, plant-based meat, is really simply to meet the demand, like White said, of the high levels of consumption of meat. And there's a way in which I don't know that we need to be up. Like, why are we always trying to uphold that consumption level? Because maybe there's a world in which we eat less and we eat more heritage breeds or more of a diversity, um, as opposed to we're not going to question the amount of eat meat we eat. We're just going to figure out a way to make enough of it. <laughs> yeah. And I guess also, like, if you look historically, you know, the amount of meat, well, first our population, right, has increased and also how a lot of people within different classes and different societies are now eating meat where before they couldn't afford to eat meat, right? Especially in, in certain areas in the world where a lot of dairy or meat was not being consumed and now are being consumed. Like you look at Asia and things like that. Um, so, and, and also it kind of reminds me of like, um, Dan Barber's book, what is it? The third plate where he kind of talks about, um, how before meat was just used in this very small amount because a lot of people couldn't afford it. And it was used as sauces and things like that. It was really kind of pushed to its, its extent of how much it could be used with a small amount. Right. So, right. Yeah. And I, one other thing that relates to that is just like this uh, preference, cultural preference for meat eating that I think is a very definitely a part of Western tradition. And even in a lot of, you know, sci-fi or dystopia, there's this anxiety that we might lose meat eating. Um, and that would just be the absolute worst, the fall of civilization to lose our ability to consume high amounts of wheat. Like meat eating kind of embodies man's ability to dominate nature. And it kind of has become this symbol for progress, especially in like the 1800s, you know, this was our notion of progress. And now our notion of progress is sort of 
lab-grown meat, but it's just carnivorousness is a part of it. And there's this sort of persistent fear that we might have to go without it as like a, you know, failure of civilization if we couldn't have meat. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that, that, that when you're saying the we there, you're talking about a kind of um, industrialist class. Uh, and and I think this links back to the the problem of, well, what about um, people... Uh, middle class or, or poor poor folks who are now able to eat meat because it is so industrialized, it's so commoditized that it's very cheap, um, and that increased consumption is the issue. So the numbers just keep going up and up and up, and the emissions thus are horrible and keep going up and up and up. And it's what do you do about it, right? I mean, it'd be easier if people just didn't eat that much meat, but it seems like the numbers are going the other direction. So far from any worry about losing animals or something, it's like it's a crisis about the planet turning into Venus. And I think, you know, it seems logical to do a number of things at once, including promote, you know, purely plant-based diets. Um, But then, yeah, to also look at just essentially other ways of creating meat, whether it's in a lab or, yeah, agroecological pasture um, techniques. And I I think you're seeing a kind of explosion of interest in all of these categories. But but to your point, Ali, I think the the lab-grown meat captures that imagination of it's, it's something new. So the claim of novelty of um, new technology being a fix um, has been um, kind of driving a lot of development in uh, sort of Euro-American context, especially, you know, in cities uh, for several hundred years. And it, and it just seems to be ramping up. So it's like for every problem, there's a group of startups, there's a whole category of startups that seek investment saying, you know, this is a problem that's actually an opportunity. It's an old system needs to be disrupted. And so you hear, so you hear the same language. And it's funny in a way, I, I think, to have lived through that where it was applied to phones and cars, and now it's being applied to chicken nuggets. And so we're reading these articles really going in depth on the disruption of chicken nuggets. Um, I don't know why that strikes me so funny. Maybe just the word nugget is a little funny. But, uh, but it, yeah, it just seems like the same logic, right, is applied across um, all forms of meat. I mean, it's – yeah. It's so true that the idea of novelty is something that sets it apart. I mean, I read this recent New York Times article with an interview with Patrick Brown, who's the founder of Impossible Foods. And a lot of green investors are really asking a lot of questions as to the emissions, the exact emissions of plant-based meat, including especially Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat. And they don't have a lot of answers. They're not accounting for the whole supply chain or consumer waste. Uh, I mean, a lot of the food industry isn't, but they're not. And his response was almost aggressive. It was sort of like, listen, we're unique. We can't be held to these kind of inquiries. Don't worry about it. We're so special and we're busy over here. He literally said we're busy trying to save the planet. And so we don't have time for these nitpicky questions. And that kind of bothered me because I feel like he's using difference as a way to escape the really complex and entangled realities of the the climate problem, the environmental problem, and that manufacturing meat is is still going to have implications in terms of water usage, machinery, technology, energy. I mean, the list goes on. Yeah. And, and also, um, yeah, just this, this frame of mind, especially within this idea of manufacturing or creating this product industrially of, um, you know, what got, what got us here in the first place, you know, why do we have such an issue with climate change? Um, because we're not thinking about, um, waste in, in a way, 
you know, and, and I think, um, Ali, what, what you were kind of also mentioning was the idea of, um, you know, if, if we are not thinking about waste, if we're not thinking about the end product, then are we going to soon get there with beyond meat or whatever with, with, with Axel meat, um, the same problem that we're having with, you know, just meat from animals, um, because we're not changing that behavior of how we're producing things and the end product, right? We're not looking at cradle to grave. Well, but it's better. Right, we're not looking at the whole value. I don't understand that criticism because it's like, it's still better. I understand the criticism of like, there's not enough transparency from tech startups for sure. And that there's still a cost for sure. There's still an environmental cost. But I mean, the difference between growing, you know, peas and growing a cow is is phenomenal. It's it's vast, and it's it is measurable. And so, I mean, one of the things at the end of the day is like, it actually hurts the industry if there are people who aren't transparent and don't measure it and say, yeah, I mean, it still has a carbon cost. It's just less than eating a cow. And I think that you have to assume that baseline, right? And the waste, similarly, of course, there's going to be cost. There's going to be waste, but yes. But if you're also clear cutting forests for more soy to produce this. Beyond Burger, this product, then you're also still clearing forest. Oh, true. The forest, yeah. No, no, no. That's a huge point. And that, that again, should be, there's, if, if there's a way to do this at all without clear-cutting forest, then, of course, that seems better. And if you are clear-cutting forest, then maybe you do have to just hard stop. But, I, you know, I, I think, I, I guess I question, those critiques sound like critiques from the meat industry and not based, I mean, th- there's one thing to say, we need better transparency and more ESG metrics. And there's another thing to just kind of say, well, it's actually the same as as cow, because that doesn't from a sort of like, um, ba- you know, like basic climate science standpoint, that doesn't seem to make sense. Like, it, 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 how could it possibly be as bad as a cow? I'm not necessarily saying it's the same of a ca- the same as a cow, but just in the whole um, uh, kind of viewpoint in producing this product, it is this idea of producing a product. And not looking at how we got to this issue in the first place, which is creating products unsustainably. Or products. Like, why do we have food as as products? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, by most estimates, uh, Impossible Burger has a 90% reduction in carbon footprint. Like, most of the analysis would agree with that. But I do think there's an important it's still within a framework of capitalism and profit. Like Melissa's saying, it's just not going to account for what we need to be. It still feels like a stopgap in some ways. Um, and I'm also sort of taking him to task on semantics. Like it's different if the founder of Impossible Burgers is like, yeah, you know what? There are a lot of unaccounted for parts of the supply chain that food just doesn't account for. And hopefully we'll get there someday. But instead he was just like, don't you dare ask us that. And so that was frustrating to me. And yeah, I mean, we can sort of question, you know, they claim that analysts have no way to ensure the emissions of Impossible Burgers are any better than factory farm meats coming from Tyson. And I think that's a little bombastic because, I mean, it might be true, but it's also a lack of data. It's not, it, it, it's not necessarily an equating of the two. Um, but I do think so far there's evidence that plant-based meats haven't actually led to a decreased meat consumption yet. Like we would hope that and a lot of people are eating them, but that really surprised me that they're, at least in the United States, we're not seeing a decrease in meat consumption overall. Yeah, we talked about this with Garrett and, and Mira that 
one danger is people continue to eat meat. And this is to Melissa, to your point, they continue to participate in a destructive overall resource extraction system um, because there are products that make you feel good and, and that you're doing slightly better. And so, you know, you don't really need to change fundamentally your lifestyle. We don't need to fundamentally change society. Um, and I think that's the danger of, of what's it's generally termed greenwashing, you know, that you're a business that's going to do something different, but it's not really fundamentally that different from any other business. You're still trying to make money, right? So I think that is the, the major critique here. Um, and I agree with you guys on that. I just wanted to be clear that, like, it's possible that there's a level of greenwashing that makes the system continue to work and the system itself is the problem at the same time that there's a reduction in, like, GHGs per product, you know? Um, both could be true, and I think, I, I suspect to, to some degree both are, and it's a question of, you know, whether you believe over time more virtuous companies will do better and that will actually have a meaningful effect um, or not. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I'm kind of curious, Wife, what you think. We've kind of been talking broadly about meat alternatives and actually specifically about plant-based meat, which is still, like you said, if you're growing peas, that's very different from a cow. And I'm kind of curious what you think of the critiques of cellular agriculture, because that's a different question in that, um, you know, it so far... There's a lot of, or there's at least some debate about exactly how efficient this could be. Um, you know, and there was a report that came out in this, that the article in the counter cited that the production price, um, you know, is over $10,000 per pound right now, but it could go down to just two fifty dollars per pound in the next nine years. And there's a lot of skepticism that that can actually happen. Um, you know, is it really just wishful thinking and I think Open Philanthropy, the organization, actually said they don't think it will ever be cost-competitive food because it's just plagued by kind of extreme cost-prohibitive challenges. Um, that was a little disappointing to me, and I'm kind of curious what you guys think about that critique. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I'm also holding my breath with like no real knowledge of the industry beyond what I read in, in these same sort of food um, food news avenues. Like, I, I. I don't study it uh, firsthand like I do vegetables. So I think, you know, you're asking people who are very plant focused. <laughs> um, but but I think like it's a great question of is this a case of a technology will improve over time, which is what the industry says. And that has been true of every industry to date. And they always make these same comparisons you hear to um, to soft uh, to to like circuits on computers, transistors, you know, basically computers got better from these huge room sized installations to like phones. Um, and, you know, well, okay, we just need sort of time and money. We need a, a runway to then develop, you know, the, the better version that will actually make money. Um, or is there some fundamental barrier around this technology? Um, from what I've seen, and I've gone to a lot of these talks, I mean, there doesn't seem to be some sort of fundamental reason you couldn't make it more efficient. But I, again, I don't, I don't know. I'm not a, a, a practitioner. Um, but I do think you you know, and part of what that counter article gets at is there's a, there's a lot of interest in saying this that you know next year, the year after, I mean any year now, there's going to be sort of real chicken nuggets that are actually chicken but grown in the lab, uh, and then it keeps sort of failing to materialize. And so there's there's something about that cycle that I, I don't know as as much about technology as it is about you know um, hype and the way that hype drives technology. Again, regardless of food, actually. Support for this episode comes from Team Pennsylvania, hosting the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit, with two events in 2022 that offer a place for farmers, professionals, investors, and policymakers to learn and connect 
while providing an occasion to network and grow the businesses that comprise the region's hemp industry. The Pennsylvania Hemp Summit aims to increase the Commonwealth's shared knowledge and resources in order to inspire innovative investments and to form transformative partnerships in the hemp industry. Join us for our upcoming trade show, reception, and investor pitch competition in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on April 26th to 27th, and again on November 8th and 9th for educational sessions, a trade show, and reception. Register to attend or get involved by exhibiting or sponsoring. Details at pahempsummit.com. I'm actually wondering, and this could be completely besides the point, but, um, you know, is there any way that it could be subsidized? Um, that a lot of money can be thrown into, you know, these companies or something like that to kind of expedite these processes or, um, you know, this, this technology. And also on that end, if a lot of these companies are, are going in, in this direction, if, if uh, they will also have lobbying power. Mm, yeah, I mean, a lot of these companies have been kind of shopping themselves around at different governments and um, really kind of advocating that governments invest in them. Uh, I think it was Ezra Klein that argued that the United States should invest billions to improve the scale. I think that's what they would like um, because, yeah, there's a thought that like if we can just get the money there to get that scalability and bring the cost down... Uh, you wouldn't have it. You would happen a lot faster. Yeah, and I think this is the question of climate disruption and green new deals or red new deals. Is like, do you subsidize tech startups and a new sector to make products that people then buy? And this is back, Melissa, back to your critique, where they're still kind of reinforcing the whole system of extraction. And the article in the counter that was, was so excellent. I mean, it's really good in depth look. Um, you know, it was very clear about the the soy. The, you know, the the fact that with um, you know, feedstock, you, you need soy and that is a huge problem and you're clearing forest to grow it. So it's like, are you incentivizing that when you subsidize or can you incentivize something else? Can you subsidize um, either different consumption patterns or different agroecological growing techniques, pasture raised beef, whatever it is? Um, what What are other ways to think about our relationship to food other than like helping technologists sort of cross um, relatively arbitrary barriers where they're saying, well, we need to get the price down to such and such per, per gram, um, which is, is interesting. And I, I'm, I'm a little torn because I'm sort of curious to see what would happen if, you know, we explored the tech route as well. But I, I do wonder, um, with limited resources, would, could, could we really realistically sort of as a species explore all of these opportunities? Or do you have to begin making choices about land use and just say, you know, no, we're not, you know, we, we need to have less soy. We need to have less destructive farming period. And so that requires rethinking a lot of things, including probably what we eat. Um, and who's the yeah. we, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, sorry, just quickly jumping on that bandwagon of like dystopian thought is with climate change, how much is our agrarian land really going to shrink? And will it actually be an option in the future? Because if we don't have enough land to really grow all this stuff too, then, you know, raise animals. Um, like you look at California and um, sorry, I should be quoting this from an article, but um, I remember through all the droughts um, that a lot of um, ranchers weren't able to actually keep their animals because there wasn't enough water. Right. So so this is this is also now it's the future 
um, with the shrinking of agrarian land and because of these climate disruptions, will we even be able to have meat? Yeah, that's a great point. And I also similarly feel torn because on one hand, I don't I think we should question the inevitability of progress as requiring technologically lab grown meat. Sometimes I think we forget that this notion of linear progression where we go from history towards a necessarily better future is this really kind of Western concept and post-enlightenment concept. Um, And so part of me is frustrated with that as like this quasi-natural technical process that we have to go this way. But on another hand, you bring up really great points about our literal capacity to raise animals. And when you see the toxins coming from CAFOs, you're sort of like, we have to do something. There has to be another avenue, even if it's not addressing the fundamental problems of consumption. You do start to get a panic around, we we have to adapt to the ruins that we are presented with, and it's not going to be ideal, you know? Yeah, and I think you'll see generational shifts in eating that are that are responsive to these stimuli. You know, you'll see people becoming, uh, you know, industry's favorite new word, flexitarian, where it's not, you know, as much of a commitment to a sort of lifestyle and politics um, around, for example, uh, fighting animal abuse um, as veganism, which is the word is associated with other things, but is is more a response to yeah climate anxiety and saying, well, I should do something, so I'll eat less meat, I'll eat better meat, I'll pay more for pasture-raised meat, and I'll try these plant-based products, and presumably cell ag will fit into that same sort of um, niche. But the the problem is, yeah, I mean, is it enough uh, if it's only a niche, and if it only account, you know, if it only does so much, and we're talking about, in this case, probably people who have enough money to make those decisions. So again, it's it's sort of limited in that sense. And I think, Melissa, you're you're looking a few more decades down the line, and, you know, maybe in a world where, okay, there are lots of these alternatives and they're great, but they all cost money. And for a lot of people, it's just sort of, yeah, does, does the price of like, quote unquote, normal or traditional meat um, just go through the roof and it's just become sort of impossible. Uh, and then, it, and you know, there's very, you know, it's very hard to see like a big system sustain itself without massive subsidies uh, that already exist. And okay, would you really spend more to prop it up in this, this, you know, negative future that is maybe likely. Um, And in that case, yeah, you'd have to wonder like, wouldn't, wouldn't this lead to a shift? I mean, wouldn't people eventually kind of make do with eating less meat, just like people used to eat less meat? I know people don't tend to think historically, but you do wonder, um, you know, how that will play out, when when, and how that will play out almost. Um, it seems like an inevitability that we've, we must have sort of reached, we will reach peak meat at some point in the century, you would think. I know this is getting real big, but it's like, any, it's like peak oil, No, you're right? not wrong. I mean, there's, yeah, there, I mean, of course, you know, Malthus was famous for claiming that we were going to run out of food and we didn't because we figured out how to uh, fix nitrogen and make fertilizer. So I guess we don't know what's around the corner, but it is, I think we can speculate that it, I would hope that meat consumption will decline. I mean, I know during the pandemic, there were all kinds of anecdotal stories from restaurants that they had far more vegan consumers. People just kind of, I think they were, health was more front of mind, but then they also thought about, it was sort of easier to experiment with the vegan diet. So maybe that will grow a little bit. Um, 
you know, and it's always good to have things marketed as vegan or flexitarian so that the choices are made a little easier. But yeah, then I sort of wonder if we're just still stuck in this cycle of consumption, like we're consuming more green products, but then there's a whole category of products that are just marketing stuff to us that is quote unquote green, but honestly, you should just not be buying more shit at all. And you should be reusing the stuff you have. And so then there's a line where it goes from being useful and helping you engage in a more sustainable life to just keeping you in the loop of consumerism. Yeah. And also the aspect of nutrition, right? Like um, in, in the article, it mentions like having a Beyond Burger at these certain um, you know, fast food chains can actually be a little less healthy for you, um, than having meat. And so the, this kind of like nutritional aspect, I don't know, just like being from the nutrition and food studies department, I just hear the nutritionists in my head, like, like, like what is the nutritional value of this and how also is it being used? Like, is it mostly being used in this process way? Is that the only way that it could be used? Um, and, and granted, you know, it's kind of interesting because I do eat meat, but in reading that article, I was like, man, I should really start eating Beyond Burgers. <laughs> like, I should just stop eating meat. There's a time when I was a vegetarian for years. I was a vegetarian for years. And then I just got like, you know, swooped back in. I love Beyond Burgers, but I have no illusions that they're healthy. They're a highly processed food. Um, but I would also push back on that, even though I agree with you. And I wonder if maybe our paradigm has to change in some ways to only being concerned about things that are healthy for us. And we have to eat things that are actually the metric is more about whether it's healthy for the environment. And I've been thinking about that a lot, because when you market things to people as being healthier for them, like organics, everyone goes crazy. People didn't care that organics were better for farmers or the environment nearly as much as once they thought it was better for their own body. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well, that's interesting, like in counter to like regenerative farming, right? Where a lot of times you'll need animals for regenerative farming and silver pasture and all these other kind of aspects and how having animals is actually a part of the system with manure and using that as compost and all these other things. Um, You know, if you label it as regenerative farming, but then how sustainable will that be? And will the term regenerative change and all of these other things? So anyway, sorry, I'll I'll stop talking. Those are being worked out now. I mean, that's like, there's a big fight about what is regenerative ag and how do you uh, credit, you know, certify that. Um, But again, that wouldn't be, the problem, I think, that that companies focused on, you know, burgers, when they, that, that's like a catechesis, like it's a term that stands in for lots of terms. But I think what that means is generally it, we're talking about very large scale farms that are leading to, you know, deforestation and, and lots of GHGs being emitted, not small regenerative operations. So I think I think that's the thing is, 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 is like at what point do we get to stop caveating that? And I, I would just suggest that we kind of can, can move on from that debate where it's like, no one is saying that we're going to shoot every cow in the face. You know, it's, it's a more complex conversation about industry and what, how do industries evolve, especially when there are, uh, they do have such so much momentum because they've been helped along. They've gotten such enormous subsidies and, and you can look at like the dispossession, like the land on which large farms operate is largely, you know, stolen from, from people who lived there. Uh, and that, that these are, these are like huge historical boosts to these industries. And it's very hard to then, 
um, get them to do something different. It's, and, and they, there may not be an immediate, like easy answer there. Um, other than, yeah, I mean, if, if in theory of consumption falls, which it hasn't fallen that much, it really, it, it's sort of, there's like arguments about it, but it's not like meat consumption has taken a nosedive. So I think that's, that's, I think why you're going to see just more and more rhetoric from industry about like, well, we're, we need these alternatives. We need these alternatives because they can point to the data and say, look, people are still eating a ton of meat. So it is, it is really like a, a current, problem, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point, especially this idea of like almost um, certain companies using that as a way of greenwashing, like, hey, we have this Beyond Burger, but we're still going to sell our meat. You know, we're not going to decline in producing or selling our meat, um, even though we are selling this other product. So in in having all of these options available, are you actually going to decrease that meat consumption or, um you know, is their market actually going to spread a little bit more because they are using Beyond Burger? Does that make sense? Well, Beyond is not meat, but there are companies in Cellag, for example, where the the big meat companies are investing in Cellag, and and it's a way of hedging their bets. Yeah, and greenwashing to your point, where they're they're able to say, well, we're looking at these alternatives, but then they're still doing a lot of other practices um, that are, you know environmentalists and, and scientists have said, hey, this is not the best way to grow food, or why you know questioning why do we even eat this stuff. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, they're, all of these critiques hold true. And at the same time, it does feel like, um, how, how do, how does any one consumer change this? Well, all you can do is really like vote with your dollar. And that's, I think, you know, it leads me back to the political. It's like, these have to be political changes. We have to have political solutions to like land use. Otherwise, yeah, it's just, what do you buy? And the easiest one is don't buy meat of any kind. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my dad ran steel mills for a really long time and he'll be, I mean, he's votes Democrat. He's environmentally conscious, but he'll be the first to tell you that no industry will self regulate on some of these issues without being forced to. Um, and they will continue to pro to pollute if it's profitable. I mean, that's just, as he said, bleakly common sense. So, and I admire him for his honesty because he's, I mean, he's a very big advocate for politicians and the federal government regulating this stuff as a motivator, but it does sort of drive home, like who, who can really move the bar is us consuming more actually a part of it, maybe just not consuming meat at all. I mean, I also think about all of the land we're using, whether it's to grow corn to feed cattle or raise cattle. I mean, all of this land is still um, a part of colonialism because our access to the land is predicated on colonialism and it's stolen land. And there's, that's a bigger wicked problem that you, you're not going to solve with cell ag or plant-based meat, but it's something to think about like this continued access to land that is required to have the diet that we have. So Patrick Brown, how he was saying, like, we're here to save the world. Like, I don't know, just that term in general, we are here to save the world. Like, where does that sound familiar? Like in colonialism, right? We're here to like, bring all of these people and save them, right? Where it's kind of true in the sense that like environmentally, uh, yeah, we we are, you know, we're not, <laughs> we, we definitely have some issues with climate change and the world as we know it is changing as we speak. Um, but But just this kind of, perspective of we are here to save the world. I don't, that, that to me does have this very colonial kind of, um, feel to it. And I could be very wrong about that, but it's 
like, you know, you know, better than everyone else. Like, yes, maybe in the sense of, of producing this thing that is less environmentally, um, you know, like that, that produces, uh, less greenhouse gases and and that type of thing. But then also within that article, if that's going to put you in this higher up position where you do not have to answer to these other aspects, um, of your, yeah, it definitely feels like a, savior mentality, you know, and I don't, I love eating plant-based burgers and I try to get my family to eat them to replace meat. Like I'm over here advocating for them, but I also think his language is super problematic. And I think you're right. There's definitely a savior complex happening there. Yeah. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think that's, that's where, um, it's, it's like not enough. This, This is where it's about like multiple changes that have to happen at once. Like tech companies can't just create technologies that lead to fewer greenhouse gas emissions. Like that's great, but it's not enough because you need to also then think about, for example, our farm workers getting paid or a forest getting cut down elsewhere or which to me is that's a little more obvious. And I think now we're getting into sort of the legacy of colonialism and imperialism um, and saying, well, in what way does this whole mentality, and this goes back, Melissa, to your earlier critique, what way does the mentality of like doing capitalism as such contribute to all of the problems at once, you know, and it, it's sort of, it, it's, um, undermining the solution, the, the, the savior thing move that we're, we're purporting to make by continuing to be sort of, um, a tech company that's sort of this, you know, there, there's a sort of white savior complex and, uh, and, and, and a little bit of, uh, a narrative around, uh, all of these interventions in new food. I don't think it's limited to just meat by any means, but, that, that, yeah, you could um, have a, a technological fix to problems that maybe require stepping back from that whole system of novelty of new technologies. Um, and so I think we've, we've said this a lot on the show, and I think we'll come back to it. And, and one question I would just have, and maybe because I know we have to go, but, you know, like, how does this relate back to urban agriculture? I, don't know, I mean, I think that, that's a huge question that I'd, I'd love to talk more about, um, you know, uh, in the future. Yeah, and I think it's a good sort of place to leave us. I like I like leaving an ambivalent in zones because I think that's actually where the best kind of work or ideas emerge from is when you have to stay with the problems that aren't an easy fix. And I think, yeah, this idea of stepping back from novelty and from the assumptions of technological progress is a really productive place to be. And I wonder if you know, urban agriculture's role isn't ever going to be to raise those animals. But I wouldn't be surprised if it has a role in um, plant-based foods in some way, plant-based burgers. I mean, even more urban farms that in some ways contribute to ingredients going in plant-based burgers and sit in restaurants and urban areas. I think there probably will be a rise. There's already been a rise in plant-based dishes in cities. I mean, the Met Gala this year was completely vegan. So I wonder if more urban farms will be more explicitly playing a role in that. Yeah. And also just the manufacturing, right? Like where are these meat breweries going to be? And also in urban agriculture, most of us um, can't grow uh, animals for meat. (laughs) Right. It's very illegal. We could grow. Yeah, we can't at all. Actually, you can, in grow, chickens. City. Uh, no, you can grow chickens, <laughs> but just for eggs, we can't we can't slaughter them. Oh, really? Did we? I didn't know that. We, we might have to open this can of worms with a the politician then. Um, that's interesting. Uh, all right. Well, I think is that does that wrap us up for today? This 
this uh, host conversation. I think so. Thank you guys for indulging this uh, interesting topic of alternative meat. And we will all sort of have to wait and see. Yeah, and we'll um, we'll have to have we could we could have back on some of our interlocutors in the industry, uh, and maybe more to Melissa's point, we should talk to some farmers about what how they think of of some of these issues, um, and maybe there are cities in which people are trying to grow more meat in and near cities, and and, and think about why and, and sort of you know that that whole conversation. And also, we have an episode coming up that's specifically about this and the history of animals in cities. <laughs> That's right. Yes. And we do have still the history episode to get out. Yes. Thank you. So you'll get to hear more. If you were missing the aspect of animals in the city, you will get it. Uh, and I'll also just give a shout out again to Joe Fassler for his awesome article in the counter. If you're looking for an epic deep dive on cellular agriculture. But yeah, thanks to both of you and to Heritage Radio as always. <laughs> Thanks to our brilliant guests. Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Werner. Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio and at fields podcast heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer and more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you want to be a part of the world's most innovative community subscribe to the shows you like tell your friends and please join the hrn family by becoming a member just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.